On this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, our Bible geography expert, Dr. Jack Beck, is back with us for more ways to help us understand the impact of place. How location is not only a significant factor in understanding Scripture, but he would argue it's essential. Geography is on virtually every page of the Bible, and it always matters. No one would know me unless they knew the place from which I come. At least they wouldn't know me as well as they could know me unless they understood my home, the place that has shaped me. And I would say exactly the same is true of every single Bible story. Stories have places. Bible stories have homes, just like people do. And you won't know those stories well unless you know those places. And so get ready to explore more locations that will open up your understanding of the story of the Bible in significant ways in a series of conversations grounded in the Holy Land with our friend Dr. Jack Beck on this edition of the Discover the Word podcast. And welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And we're all pretty excited to have Dr. Jack Beck back with us. As I said, he is our Bible geography expert here at Our Daily Bread Ministries. He, of course, has been with us here on Discover the Word several times before. Uh, He's published several books with Our Daily Bread Publishing, including a Bible atlas that we found tremendously helpful, and a new book called A Walking Tour of the Gospels that's coming out soon. And he's also done a lot of work with our film crews, producing three seasons of a video series called The Holy Land. And Jack will mention in just a moment an upcoming fourth season of those Holy Land videos that we're in the planning stages of right now. And I'll tell you about an opportunity that you have related to that later on in this podcast. All right, but now let's get started. And listen as Daniel Ryan Day, Elisa Morgan, and Bill Crowder welcome our good friend, Dr. Jack Beck. When I first kind of joined the team, I remember we invited this guest to come on to talk about biblical geography. And I remember like thinking, what is that? And then as Jack Beck began to lead us through that series, it was just fascinating how he led us to see how the story of the Bible is told through the land of where the Bible takes place. So we're excited to have him back again to lead us through. Yeah, I remember that time you just brought things to life so well that our imaginations were filled uh, with uh, the pictures of what you were describing for us. And so with Daniel, I'm just really delighted to have you back with us, brother. And I always like to give the disclaimer at the beginning of these conversations that I am completely geographically impaired and I have no understanding (laughs) of direction. So please continue to flesh it out visually for me so I can maybe follow along behind you guys. (laughs) (laughs) What a privilege it is to be back in the room with, with all of you. I love being around the Word of God and studying it with others. And uh, it's a really great gift to me that you have an interest in the thing that interests me most, which is the way in which God has chosen to shape the big story and my story geographically. So uh, I'm hopeful that as we continue to unpack the way in which geography shows up in the Bible, that new insights will be uh, forthcoming and that that folks will hear the Lord in a way that they hadn't heard him speak before, because some of what God has to say to us, he's chosen to say 
geographically. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Where are you going to take us for this first conversation? The week that we're looking at here is all built around the experience that we hope to bring people in season four of the Holy Land with our Daily Bread film. And uh, season four, we're going to go to a number of new places, places we haven't been to before. And the first of those is going to be the district of Samaria. That's where we're headed. What do you guys know about it? I just recently found out the Samaritans still exist, which I felt terrible for not knowing that. But for some reason, I just assumed that their story kind of ended maybe around Jesus time or something like that. And then I was at the Museum of the Bible and they had a whole display on the modern day Samaritans, which blew Hmm. my mind. Yeah. And of course, I think about the woman of the well and yeah. her exchange with Jesus and his earthly ministry and how through her, Samaritans came to be followers of Christ, so many. Yeah, yeah. and what I think of when I hear it is um, twofold. In Old Testament, I think of Ahab and his conflict with Elijah, the prophet, in Samaria and ultimately on Mount Carmel. But I also think about that very famous story that Jesus told where he flipped the script on his listeners who expected the hero of the story to be a Jewish Mm -hmm. person. But when Jesus told the story, he shocked them all by making a Samaritan the hero of the story. And and that that still, to me, is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There are lots of Samaria-related stories. Uh, The one that we're going to zero in on to try to unpack the region a little bit which will give insight into all of the others, is the one that you mentioned, Bill, and that is the story of Ahab and Jezebel. And our text is going to be 1 Kings 16.30 is the text that we're going to be looking at. I'd love if someone would put that out in front of us. So Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Great text, right? (laughs) You just gotta love a text like that. Well, what I'd like to do is, first of all, connect that language to the region of Samaria, a region that I call the good land. I always try to give each of the regions that we study a little phrase that is a memory hook for us. And uh, the region of Samaria is really the good land. And there are two levels to that that we can explore. The first is the sort of physical side of that and then the spiritual side of that. Because I think when we get the fact that the story of Ahab and Jezebel is a Samaria story and lay it against what we're about to unpack first, it will come out in all of the horror that we may have been missing when we didn't treat it as a geographical story. So let's start, first of all, by thinking about the district itself. It's located within the core of the country in the central mountain zone. So I got to give Elisa some help here. I'm teasing you, of course. (laughs) That's awesome. And me. Go for it. (laughs) It's got to be north of Jerusalem. Uh, And it's going to be south of the Jezreel Valley. So we're going to be in the middle of the country, but not only east to west, but north to south, kind of right there in the center of it. And I got to tell you guys, of all my places I visit in the Holy Land, it's one of my favorites. Hmm. Why? 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 Yeah. Because I'm an outdoor guy. Oh, okay. And there is no place in the modern land today that looks as pristine and Mm -hmm. rural and uh, wonderfully lush as that piece of real estate. Uh, mm-hmm. it, if I had to build a house, I think I'd build a house somewhere mm-hmm. in that area today. 
but we got to go back and look at it through the ancient eyes and think about the things that were most important to people who are living in the past. So let's, let's see if we can assemble a list. What are the things that would be high in your list of desirability if you were to choose a place to live? Water. Fresh water, yeah. Boom. You got it in Samaria. Great rainfall totals. What else do you need? Well, you need the ability to, to grow food. And we have a second winner. <laughs> we, we've got really strong agricultural land because in the central mountains and a lot of places, the valleys tighten up and it's really hard to have much level land to grow food on. You need to build terraces like in Judas Hill Country to the south of Samaria. But in Samaria, the land sort of opens up really beautifully in a way that creates this big open basin farmlands. So you've got those two things. Let's keep going. What else do you got? Well, in ancient times, you would want something that would give you a sense of security. And there's just enough rise in the terrain to give you that security. I got one more. Transportation. Yeah. So if I can grow a surplus of food here, it means I have more than I need for my local needs. I can export food, create uh, income from that, and I've got great transportation corridors that go out into the larger world. And uh, if you put all of that together, the security, the agriculture, the transportation network, there's no place in the Holy Land that checks more boxes than this region of Samaria. That's why I call it the good land. But I call it the good land that got even better because it's the very first place that Abraham and Sarah came when they came into the land in Genesis 12. And it was here at Shechem within the region of Samaria that God said to Abraham, this land of Canaan, this is the land that I've promised to give you. And the promise of salvation got intimately bound to the land for the first time in this place. Yeah, well, because it was not just being promised a blessing to him and his descendants, but to the whole world. And yeah. so that means if it's tied to that piece of land in that way, that's what makes it good news for all of us around the table and all of us who are listening as well. But on a personal level for Abraham, it must have been almost a relief just because when he left Ur of the Chaldees and then he left Haran, the Lord said, go to a place that I'm going to show you. And so now all of a sudden God says, here it is. So he's home. It may not feel like home yet, but it's home. Yeah. Wonderful sense of home. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting what I'm sharing, right? That Samaria is a good land that gets even better uh, by the time of King Ahab. There's just no other space that's going to give you all of these wonderful advantages. But he squanders it. He squanders it. And remember that verse that we read just a few moments ago? He tumbles into this really awful, awful state. And that has to do, I think, with the fact that King Ahab simply was a man of great greed. Economically, he had all of the advantages, but he wanted more. And his dad, Omri, had actually begun to set the table for all of this by redirecting trade through Samaria that was going east of the Jordan River and then using the uh, supply network that Phoenicia had around the Mediterranean Sea to take those goods and move them to international markets. Ahab was positioned as the middleman to take advantage of all of that. But you know who came along with the deal, right? Yeah, Jezebel. Mm, Right. Yeah, Jezebel. And if there's one thing that Jezebel was attached to, it was dad's worship of Baal. Mm -hmm. And she convinced Ahab that to be as economically successful as he wanted to be, they had to worship Baal as well. And so within their capital city, within Samaria itself, they established a Baal worship sanctuary, a temple. 
and thereby really making that deity, that pagan deity, rather than the Lord, making that deity their prime national deity. He took this good land that had all of the advantages and had it go bad. And I think it's it's founded in that idea of greed that simply accompanied Jezebel coming into the land. Mm-hmm. Jack, as I'm looking at this scripture, it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, more evil than anybody before him. I don't see the word greed. And as you're like breaking down worship of Baal or Baal, I'm struggling to make the connection between that and greed. Are you bringing that from just the study of ancient peoples and all of that? Or is there a place in the scriptures that it describes that greed or help us kind of make that connection? Because all all I see is the word evil. Yeah, fair connection, right? So the way I build it, that connection is this, Daniel. This is a Samaria story. And so it's a story of a person in a land that offered everything you could you could want. You don't need anymore. The Lord has given you what you need. You've made a choice to go, I'm not satisfied with that. I want more. And so we create this large economic program that is going to bring more, but that large economic program comes with a consequence. And that is you are going to be attracted into the worship of Baal as a consequence. And that's the great evil. But the question is, where did that great evil come from? How is it that Ahab looked at this land and said, I want more? How is it that he ended up moving from that to the worship of Baal? And I think it's a consequence of that greed of wanting more than the Lord had given him in this good land that landed him in this place where he reached out and spiritually compromised his own integrity and the integrity of his country by worshiping Baal. There's another place later in Ahab's story where we see a specific case of greed, though, in their jack. That's right. At Jezreel, I think, is what you're thinking, right, Bill? Naboth's vineyard, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Naboth was a man who had a vineyard. Ahab had everything, but he wanted that. And he sulked because Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. And finally, Jezebel had Naboth killed so that she could present this vineyard to Ahab. And and I think that, you know, whether we can say that that's emblematic of his larger greed that you're describing, Jack, or not, we do know that in that case, greed motivated him in a destructive way. And I want to pitch in here as well the language of Paul in First Timothy. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When we begin to nurture dissatisfaction with what we have, this can get legs that runs in places we don't see from the beginning. I don't think from the start, as Ahab was developing this economic development plan for the northern kingdom, I don't think that he was thinking about worshiping Baal. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and that's where it ran. And I think for what it's worth, the same is true for us, right? (laughs) I mean, there's a cautionary tale here. Uh, We live in a good land, in a land with lots of things that the Lord has blessed us with. Dissatisfaction seems to be just around the next corner, I turn. And while that dissatisfaction with what I have might seem like a small thing, I think this is a cautionary tale of where that can lead, where suddenly my dissatisfaction leads to a desire for more, which leads to greed, and then the horse is out of the barn. Yeah. I'm not sure where that's going to go or that I can control where that's going to go. I think in the end, right, that this story has got some awfulness 
to it if you extract it from its place. But if you make this a Samaria story, you start to see a new dimension to his dissatisfaction and um, more problems maybe than I saw before when I didn't see it as a part of the story of the good land. A good land gone bad. How understanding the way Samaria fits into the story of the Bible really is crucial, isn't it? Dr. Jack Beck with us on this episode of Discover the Word podcast, taking us to places in the Holy Land and showing us the impact of those places. Yeah, location is always a factor that we need to consider and understand. And having Jack with us here certainly helps with that. Now, in this next part of the conversation, we're going to stay in Samaria, but we're going to see how this good land gone bad experiences what Jack calls a great reversal when we get to Jesus. Because Jack says, coming from a place like the United States that has, uh, what, about 250 years worth of history, and going to a place like the Holy Land that has thousands of years of history, well, that is a major perspective difference that we need to recognize. It's one of the dramatic differences between Western and Eastern culture, in my mind's eye. One of my colleagues says it this way. She says that the folks in this land walk into the future backwards. And that's a very vivid picture of what it means to always be thinking about what happened before rather than thinking that I am the sum total of that experience. Hmm. Walking into the future backwards. Always looking back at the history of a place to interpret the present and the future. As I said, Jack is going to take us back to Samaria and help us walk into the future backwards when it comes to this crucial location in the story of the Bible. Let's listen. If I follow the trajectory of Samaria stories throughout the Old Testament, I don't leave feeling very good about the place. (laughs) I've looked and looked and looked, and really there is no redeeming positive, uplifting story that comes from this region of Samaria. The first time I get an inkling that something good could come out of the place is going to be when I join Jesus at the well at Sychar, and I meet the woman at the well, and I hear that whole Sychar story begin to unfold. Uh, But there's another story, the one that I'd like to talk about uh, in this session, uh, that comes to us from Acts chapter 8. And it, too, is a Samaria story. And in case you missed it, Luke is going to make sure that we get it. Uh, Let's take a look at Acts 8, verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. So the question is, what in the world does Samaria have to do with our understanding of this story, and I think almost everything. Hmm. But to get to that point, we sort of have to unpack the story details. Let's walk through a part of uh, Acts 8 to it together, starting with a you know a set of questions like, who is Philip? This is the individual we meet in the story. What do you know about him? Well, there are two Philips that are prominent in the New Testament. One is one of Jesus' disciples, and he's mentioned several times in the Gospels. This appears to be a different Philip, maybe one of that group of seven men who was put together to take care of the widows at the church in Jerusalem. How did he, uh, how did he end up getting to Samaria? Do you remember that part of the story? Because that's not 
where the story actually begins in Acts 8. Yeah, they were being scattered from Jerusalem through persecution, right? That's what that verse 4 says. And Philip then went down to a city in Samaria, and he proclaims the Messiah. So, you know, he's a layperson who's become a disciple. Yeah, I love that because when I read about his circumstances in Jerusalem, when he gets to Samaria with that background that he's got, right, of persecution having recently occurred, I would just, you know, my first inclination would be to lay low. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, don't call any attention to myself. If it was bad in Jerusalem, how much worse could it be for me in Samaria, right? Mm-hmm. And instead, in verse 7, you know, he's casting out impure spirits and they're shrieking. And this is like a, a big, I don't know, scene. Yeah. yeah. But the key is verse 8, I think. Mm-hmm. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Mm-hmm. Instead of being persecuted, He's being celebrated to some degree. And Bill, do you feel that dramatic shift in the narrative of Samaria? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, put that into words. What are you sensing there? And mm-hmm. Does this fit? No, they've been kind of pictured throughout the Old Testament, especially during the era of the Northern Kingdom, as a place that had no good kings. It was kind of given over to idolatry. And as you pointed out, the Old Testament kind of leaves it in that place. It's only when we come into the New Testament that it seems like the tide turns and there's a spiritual awakening that takes place uh, throughout the New Testament in Samaria. Yeah. It's also jumping out to me, too, that this is a city in Samaria. And sometimes we think of Samaria as just one thing. But this is a continuation of what already happened when Jesus met the woman at the well, and then she becomes this first evangelist of Jesus to her whole community, and the whole community turns out to hear from Jesus. And fast forward to Acts 8, now we have another part of Samaria. So there's also a sense of momentum that's building in that region, all centered around this good news about who Jesus is and what he's done to free the world. I love that, Daniel. And let me shock you, because (laughs) I don't know that you feel the shock quite yet in reading that verse we did before that mentions Samaria twice. By the time we get to the New Testament era, the era when this story is occurring in Acts 8, the name of the city that people would have typically known is not Samaria. (laughs) It would have been Sebasta. Sebasta was the new name of the city. Herod the Great had been given this city by Caesar Augustus and in deference to him, had built a temple there and renamed the city Sebastus, which is the equivalent, of, the Greek equivalent of the Latin Augustus. So mm. when Luke drops this place name in front of our eyes, he's intentionally going back to an earlier place name, a label that had mm. been stuck on the place before. So where I expect to hear Sebasta, instead I hear Samaria. What does that do for you? Well, words like smells invoke memory. (laughs) I would think that it'd be very much like uh, for a Russian, if somebody would refer to Mm. St. Petersburg as Leningrad, it would bring back a very stark kind of sense of memory. Yeah, and it just ties history together, right? It reminds us that there's a story that's been going on a lot longer than just this one moment in the story. Yeah. yeah. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to reread Acts 8.14, mm-hmm. and I'm going to inflect it to illustrate 
the point that I think Luke is trying to make. Because news of what happened in Samaria, Sebasta, got back to Jerusalem, right? Verse 814 in Acts, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria to investigate. Isn't that striking? Yeah. They're sending an investigative team out there because this sounds too incredible to be believable. Yeah. And and it's almost as if Philip came again, as you said, Elisa, as a layman who's now turned into a messenger of the gospel. But when they get word of what's going on, they send in the first team. Okay, I got to go. Wait, wait. I mean, the, the woman at the well... And John 4, we're told that everybody started believing, you know, many, many, many believed. What's the time difference? How much time has passed? I don't think much more than a decade, if that. Yeah, I was yeah, thinking I mean, maybe eight to 10 years. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what had jumped out to me that I was, maybe I didn't say it in a helpful way earlier, but the fact that there's all of okay. these different towns. Mm-hmm. And so like her village, you know, we often think of like each of these towns or cities in the ancient world is like New York City or something, but they're actually often very small villages. And so for her, she her whole village came out to hear that. Yes. And perhaps that's still going. We don't have any reason to think that her village is not still following Jesus in that way. Yeah. Verse five says it's the city of Samaria, not the region of Samaria. Sychar would have been an entirely different town. So like you say, there may have been some overflow from the events of Sychar that reached as far as Samaria, but we don't know that. Thank you, Bill. That makes sense. So let me help here as well and push Sychar and Samaria, city of Samaria, even farther apart. Everything we know about Sychar and the exchange of Jesus with the woman at the well suggests she is a Samaritan in her belief system. That is her religious category. When we move to the city of Samaria, we are moving into a Roman pagan environment. Another huge step away. So while in Jerusalem, I might be able to tolerate the idea that there are some people up in the village of Sychar who were Samaritans who are now coming alongside the Christian movement. I am going to be shocked to hear that a place like Samaria, Sebasta, is off the grid because a city like Samaria and Sebasta seems way too sin-ruined to be savable. Yeah, that's really helpful, Jack. And it also reminds me of where Acts begins, the book of Acts, because it gives this promise that the good news is going to be proclaimed in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria— and this is That's Luke, good, Luke yeah. like giving that nod back to remember at the beginning of this, when I said Samaria was going to respond, here's the story where Samaria responds. Yeah, absolutely. Let's add one more layer to this, because I think the shock will not be total unless we see the relationship <laughs> between this and another Jerusalem story. So when Peter and John show up, and remember, they're sent as an investigative team to find out what in the world happened here. Is this story Incredible, is this, is this believable? Uh, they show up and they don't seek to change a thing. They don't correct Philip. They don't say, you were supposed to be food distributor. What are you doing talking about Jesus to people out here? They don't correct his message. What they do is shape a couple of things that in the experience of the people up there that needed to be changed. But here's what I see. Peter spoke the Spirit of God came on them in miraculous fashion, and people were baptized. (laughs) What does that sound like to you? Wow. 
Sounds a lot like Pentecost. Sounds a lot like what just happened, right? Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. But it wasn't Jerusalem, which is where Pentecost occurred, but it was in Samaria, Sebasta. Hmm. And that's why I think Luke tells this story, right? I suspect stories like this occurred throughout Judea and Samaria. But why tell the story of Samaria, Sebasta? Because it's that place that is so hopeless in your mind's eye because of what you know from the Old Testament, because of what you know in the early story of Herod the Great's paganizing of that city. It is so hopeless. And then to have that city come to know Jesus as their Savior, and not just that, but to have exactly the same Pentecost experience that Jerusalem had had This is a lightning bolt that comes into the world and says, look, there is no place so distant from me, so outside of the grid of expectation, so sin-ruined that it cannot be saved. That's the lesson for the early church, and I think that's the lesson for me too, because I have a tendency to put the border somewhere, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. put some sort of marker in the sand and say, but... You know, Except. Mm-hmm. that far, but no farther. Right. Yeah. And this story just makes me rethink that and say there's no place, there's no person that can out the reach of God's forgiveness. Yeah. And there's no place or part of me that is beyond his reach as well. Yeah. That's what grace is all about. And what I love about this uh, is it's a wonderful illustration of how important it is to not just read the local story geographically, but to follow the trajectory of Mm -hmm. a place. Uh, If you start in the Old Testament and you start with Ahab and Jezebel and you see the infamy that surrounds this city of Samaria and how Herod the Great really doubles down on it when the city becomes Sebasta, Mm -hmm. there is just a story here that seems to be going nowhere. That is, until Acts 8. And this is that great reversal that geographically illustrates, I think, how God can take something we think is hopeless and turn it into something redeemed. That is a powerful lesson on the land. (laughs) Ahab did more evil than anyone before him, and then God shows up in the same place and does more good. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I mean, that reversal Mm -hmm. is something. And how often have we missed those bridges between testaments because we don't realize that event is occurring in the same place. Yeah. And for people yeah. who told these stories yeah. first and for who first heard them after they were written down, they had a way of organizing these stories geographically that we don't when yeah. we put it into a book and separate them uh, by yeah. all those pages. It's one of the things that I think has most struck me as a Bible reader in the land is how stories stack vertically in a space and then interact with each other. I think, Daniel, you're spot on. Mm -hmm. If Ahab does more evil here than anyone else, that legacy lives with that city. And we think, well, that's an irreparable legacy. There's no way that that will ever, ever change. And, you know, then you come to the language in Acts 8 where Jerusalem is shocked. And that's what we're supposed (laughs) to feel. That is why Luke uses the word Samaria, I think, rather than Sebasta there for the city. He's trying to tap into that history of the place, the infamous history that is going to experience this dramatic reversal in Acts 8. And so that's how knowing the geography and the history of a place 
changes the way we read our Bible and helps us to walk into the future backwards. Now, Dr. Jack Beck, along with Bill Crowder and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day, your study partners today here on Discover the Word. And in this episode, Jack is taking us to some locations in the Holy Land to show us how much geography is a crucial part of understanding the story of the Bible. And we will head south in the Holy Land next, leave this good land for a place where Jack says life is lived on the edge. We'll go there after this important word about something that we'd like you to help us with. Now, Jack and I both mentioned at the front end of this episode a video series he's done with us here at Our Daily Bread Ministries called The Holy Land. There are three seasons currently on our Our Daily Bread Media Hub online at odb.org media that add a video dimension to the kinds of things that we're talking about here on Discover the Word. And this week, Jack is previewing for us some of the places that we plan on going in a fourth season that we're beginning to put together right now. And Lord willing, this fall, we will take a crew to Israel and film and then come back with the footage and release season four sometime next year. And one of the places that we plan on going is Samaria, this favorite location of Jack's in the land. It is an amazing place and an amazing story. And very few people get there. I love to take groups there and put these stories on that space Mm -hmm. because then you can physically look at the space where Ahab and Jezebel would have built their temple to Baal. I think Herod the Great built his temple to Caesar Augustus on the same piece of high ground. We don't have the archaeology for it, but it just makes sense. That's where people put their temples in cities. And so you have these marks on the ground that suggest this place is irreparable. And uh, then you get the Acts 8 story that delivers the great reversal and the, and the messaging that no place is too sin ruined to be saved. That's a great, great stop. Yeah, and so having talked about Samaria these last couple of days, do you see how the impact of a video visit there could add another dimension? And so for the next few weeks, we're going to ask you, our Discover the Word group, to help fund the production of this final season of the Holy Land video series. Taking a crew over there is expensive, and costs have risen dramatically, like 30 to 40 percent over the last time we went. But we so believe in the value of these videos that we'd like to give you the chance to partner with us. And so would you consider partnering with us financially in this effort? These Holy Land videos, and the way Jack makes the Bible's geography meaningful, really do have an impact. And so if you'd like to help us with the funding for this fourth and final season of the Holy Land video series, go to our discovertheword.org website and click on the Donate button. All the money given there over the next several weeks will go toward funding this last season of the Holy Land. Again, go to discovertheword.org and click Donate. All right, now let's see where Jack takes us in this next segment, a place that is so influential in the lives of Abraham and Sarah and their family. We've just had the opportunity to talk about the good land, the land of Samaria. I feel like I'm going to take us completely to the other end of the spectrum. (laughs) We're going to move to a new region, the region of the Negev. Uh, Negev in Hebrew means south or dry, and it's that region that has a great influence on the lives of Abraham and Sarah, the region of the Negev. And rather than going to 
a text that's talking about one of their stories, I'd like to go to Hebrews 11, 9, and 10, where Negev isn't mentioned, but the life of the Negev is. The life of the Negev is a life on the edge. Let's see if we can find that in Hebrews 11, 9, and 10. By faith, he, Abraham, stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now let's set that aside just for a moment and unpack a little bit about what the Negev is and the interaction of Abraham and Sarah with that land, and then come back to the verse again. I think if we do that, you're going to hear and see some things uh, maybe you didn't hear and see on the first read. Uh, First of all, where are we? The Negev, right? Uh, So again, it's helpful, I think, to kind of position ourselves. If we go south of Jerusalem through Mm -hmm. the central mountains, we eventually come to Hebron. And when we come out of the mountains uh, south of Hebron, we come into a set of dry basins that run generally east and west. Uh, This is the area of the biblical negative. Now, be careful because the modern parlance, the modern geography, puts the negative in a much larger frame, going all the way down to the Red Sea. That is what the modern Israeli would call the Negev. But I'm going to tighten our frame just to those dry basins south of Hebron, uh, where we find cities like Beersheba and Arad. Uh, that is the Negev of Bible times. And the phrase that I use to summarize it is, the Negev is a place where life is lived on the edge. And we were talking earlier about Samaria, uh, right? And about some of the wonderful things that you needed to to live. Let's go back to some of those. You tell me, what are some of the things you need? And I'll tell you the Negev story. Yeah, I think we said uh, water, a good source of water. But you talked about Negev meaning dry, right? (laughs) Like four to eight inches of precipitation dry. So comparison, Jerusalem gets 22. Mm. Yeah. What else do you need? Arable land. Yeah, which you actually have. The Negev has a unique kind of soil called less soil, L-O-E-S-S soil, which is actually quite fertile. But the problem with agriculture is going to go back to what Elisa observed, dry, right? So I don't have the 12 inches of annual precipitation to grow a predictable grain crop in the region. About the only thing you can raise down there are sheep and goats. You have just enough rainfall to green the pastures during the wetter uh, winter season. But before long, those pastures dry up, and it means you have to go on the move. So you start assembling all of those things, and you go, wow, life in the Negev, life is possible, but it's sort of life on the edge. It's, it's It's not possible all year round. And so if you live in the Negev, you aren't going to necessarily build a home out of stone, no need. You got to leave. You got to leave as soon as the pasture lands dry out. You need to move north in order to get connection with agriculturalists where you can buy grain. You need to leave behind the wells that you've dug. A life in the Negev, just it's the promised land, but it's really land with very little promise. Huh? So what you're describing is a, a group of people that would be more like nomads. So they might mm-hmm. come in for a season and raise their flocks there but then whenever it's getting to the more difficult parts of the year, they might move out of that and find a different region to live in. Yeah, semi-nomadic pastoralism is how I would label it, Daniel. Raising of the livestock is possible, 
but you can't stay there all year. So let's take that picture, which is a very different picture, right, than we painted of Samaria. The land of Israel changes its appearance, and the ecosystem changed dramatically as you move from one region to the next. Uh, you've got that new picture now of the Negev. Let's put the story of Abraham and Sarah in view. Do you remember where their story begins? It's actually not in the promised land. Ur of the Chaldees is where it begins, which is far to the east of the promised land, right? Exactly so. And then they move northwest to Haran, mm-hmm. and they hang out there for a while. And if there's a really nice place to live, that's it. Mm. Good agriculture, good pasture lands. You're on a tributary of the Euphrates River. Anybody want to move? No. <laughs> Isn't it surprising that something like the Negev is in the promised land? We think of it as being perfect, almost like heaven. You know, the Old Testament's maybe equivalent of it in some ways. You know, isn't it surprising that this dry basin is part of the land? Yeah, it is. I would totally agree with you, Lisa. And I would add, it's going to shape its own kind of story, right? (laughs) From what you've just heard, you're going to know it's got a different type of story than Samaria is going to offer us. Yeah. And speaking of Samaria, I thought you had said in our maybe first conversation that that's where Abraham and Sarah settled and got, received God's promise of this blessing. So if Samaria was that good, yeah. how did they end up in the Negev and why would they do that? <laughs> You're asking the right question, Daniel. Okay. I had geographic influence on you. I love that. I love that. So let's, let's, let's just back up a, a step or two from where you took us to Haran okay. again. The Lord appears to Abram and Sarah there and says, look, I need you to go to a new place to accomplish a mission I've got for you, right? So 400 miles later, they are exactly where you put them, Daniel, in Samaria at the place called Shechem. And there the Lord appeared and said, to your family, I give this land. Well, nothing Abraham and Sarah looking around going, this is not as nice as it was in Haran. Doable, doable, but nowhere near as nice. The problem with the place that they're in in Samaria is it's the good land and everybody else had already laid claim to it. And if you're the newcomer in the land, you don't get first choice. Mm. So they begin to move south. Another day, another day, another day. In Genesis 12, 9, we hear they arrive in the Negev. (laughs) They didn't go to the choice land. They went to the land where their presence wouldn't be contested because the land wasn't as good. Hmm. Hmm. So this is on them. Yeah. Think about that. Think about that. I I know that we sometimes homogenize the land of Israel into land that's all the same. But when we watch Abraham and Sarah move from Haran to Shechem and Samaria to the Negev, you're going from really, really good to good to, uh, yeah, you know. That kind of fits, right, with what we begin to learn about Abraham the more we get into his story, because as amazing of a person as he was in some ways, every time something was difficult, he did not create good solutions. So yeah. whether it was, hey, my wife's beautiful and we're in this space <laughs> where they might kill me to get to her, mm-hmm well, let's just say she's my sister, which is kind of a half-truth and right to protect himself. And then him and Sarah both are like, well, God's too slow on his promises. Mm -hmm. So let's do something incredibly evil and (laughs) make him sleep with the slave girl. 
and have Ishmael. And so there's just like this progression of right. Abraham not making good decisions either. It also seems to be a kind of a personality thread mm-hmm. that you see through Abraham that he really struggles with confrontation. Mm-hmm. Rather mm-hmm. than confront the people who were inhabiting the land, he mm-hmm. goes to the much less desirable land, which is in one sense harder, but in another sense it's easier because there's no confrontation there. Yeah. So I want to suggest an idea to you that you may be new to you, and that is all the things that you've said. And the great frustration, I think, that sort of accompanied the life of Abraham and Sarah Mm. is in part a product of their having to make a home Mm. in the Negev. Year after year after year, they have to migrate out of this land north walking past cities, walking past farm fields, walking past water resources that are way better than they had known down in the Negev. Knowing that the Lord had said, this land is all yours, but for 42 years, I'm going to say that one more time, for 42 years, they made the journey from the Negev north into better land, always to retreat into that marginal land that offered only life on the edge. I think the frustration that that generated is in part showing up in some of those stories that you were mm-hmm. mentioning. I think it's also interesting, Jack, that earlier in this conversation, you, you mentioned that the Negev was not a place where you built a house. <laughs> and because of going back mm-hmm. and forth, the book of Hebrews that Daniel read to us said that they dwelled in tents. They didn't have a stationary kind of stable home base to work from. Let's go there. Remember, I mm-hmm. promised full circle. <laughs> we looked at the Negev. We cited Abraham and Sarah's life there. Go back to Hebrews 11, and you tell me where you see Negev story. You've already mentioned one, Bill. Yeah, so by faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, which is kind of true, right? <laughs> it's just a different part of where mm-hmm. God promised an heir. The promised land was little promise. And then it's interesting, as did Isaac and Jacob. So these decisions that Abraham and Sarah made directly impacted the next two generations after them. Mm -hmm. What else do you see in that verse in Hebrews 11 that is very much Negev? He went out not knowing where he was going. He's on the move. Yeah. He's on the move. There's more. He doesn't know where he wants to be. He just knows he doesn't particularly want to be there. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. And he's looking forward to this city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So it's like he's waiting for that final completion of God's promise. Yeah. He's not living in a city. He's living in a tent. He's living the Bedouin life on the move. He is living uh, the language like a stranger in a foreign land. He's been promised everything, but he doesn't feel local. He doesn't feel like he belongs. And what I'm so struck by is where Hebrews 11, it's it's all, I mean, this is very much a Negev life that's being described there, but what's being celebrated? Mm -hmm. The faith. Mm -hmm. In spite of the fact that Abraham and Sarah's story is one that occurs on the margins of survivability, despite the fact that they struggled with the possibility of God completing the promises that he had given them and looking for ways to help him maybe along the way. In spite of all of that, exemplary faith is possible even in these difficult moments of life. And that's a powerful story. It's a powerful story of Hebrews 11 generally. But I think you counterpoint Abraham and Sarah's life with Negev and you go, 
Even then, is it possible to have exemplary faith? And to drive it even a little bit further home, this is where God's nudging me, is that it's possible to please God for it to be counted as faith when we are living in the negative of our faith, when we're living in the dry bones of our faith, when we're still struggling. Nice. It's possible that that, too, is enough. So one more time, we're seeing that a region within the promised land is unique unto it in its own right. The Negev is not like other places. And consequently, mm-hmm. it produces life stories that are different than mm-hmm. the stories that we read in other places. The life of Abraham and Sarah is a Negev story yeah. for 42 years. They lived that story. We see the frustration. We see the attempts to fix the story. And yet where Hebrews 11 lands us is, through it all, even when they were living life on the edge, they were able to demonstrate an exemplary faith. And for me, that's really a powerful uh, lesson, because I think when it gets hard, then I should get a pass <laughs> on having yeah. a strong faith, right? And Hebrews 11 says, no, you can have that hard life. You can, for 42 years, live in tents and follow your livestock into places that look better than one, the one you're living and still be someone of great exemplary faith. Dr. Jack Beck showing us how a knowledge of this Negev region and living life on the edge helps us understand the story of Abraham and Sarah and gives us encouragement as we live out our stories as well. Well, in this next segment, Jack will take us even further south in the Holy Land to a region that actually lies outside the Promised Land. If in this Negev region, life is lived on the edge, where we'll go next is life over the edge. Why, Lord? The question of the human experience, isn't it? Mm, Why this? I don't ask that question when things are really going well. I ask that question when things aren't going so well, when when life is sort of tipped over the edge in a negative direction. You know the experience, right? Our friend Philip Yancey talks about that why as being the question that never goes away. And it's so good. It's the question that rises really abruptly in my mind as soon as I go into the southern wilderness for a story. Another (laughs) set of regions. We're actually leaving the promised land. The promised land was defined by the biblical authors as extending from Dan to Beersheba. Beersheba is in the Negev. And we just finished talking about a Negev story with Abraham and Sarah. We're going to go farther south. We're going to step out of the promised land and into a region we call the southern wilderness. The bigger why question that's going to surround this is why in the world would the Lord allow his chosen people who have an incredibly important mission, why would he park them there in the wilderness for decades. And Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 and 3 is going to give us an answer. I'm going to hold on that text. Let's come back to it after we unpack a little bit about the austerity of this southern region, uh, the southern wilderness. And we're about to step into a region where pretty much the possibility of sustained life goes away. Jeremiah 2, verse 6 offers one of the best word pictures of the view into this wilderness area. Jeremiah 2, 6, it is the barren wilderness, Jeremiah says, a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. Anybody Ooh. go to Death Valley, California? I mean, that's isn't that why it's called Sounds that? Sounds right. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's not right. It's not a vacation paradise (laughs) (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. It is not a place you would choose to go because there simply isn't enough water or food. In some places, you have so little rainfall, rainfall totals drop below four inches all the way down to one inch. You can't even uh, develop pasture lands in this space for livestock. So Jeremiah correctly says it's a land where no one travels and no one lives. And as a Bible reader, I would not expect there to be a story in this place of significance, much less a significant story that lasted upwards of 38 years. Hmm. You know what story I'm talking about? The Exodus. Yeah. As God brought his people out of Egypt, first of all, taking them south to Mount Sinai, where he, for a year, organized them as a people, both in terms of civic and religious organization, And then began to move them north in the direction of Canaan, where the promised land. We would have expected them to enter the promised land on year two after departing Egypt, right? Because that's about how long it would have taken for them to work out everything that we uh, have the Lord apparently needing to do. Do you recall the story from the book of Numbers where they came right to the edge of the land and were turned back? Yeah, Yeah, they sent spies to spy out the land, and when they returned, 10 of the 12 spies said, we can't take this place. The residents there are too big. They're too powerful. We're nothing compared to them. Two of the spies came back with a good report, but the 10 won the people over, and they rejected the promise. Yeah, so in a way you could say it was their choice to go back into the wilderness and live there. Well, throughout Scripture, God seems to use wilderness as training place. Yeah. We saw Abraham in the Negev at the beginning of his ministry. Elijah was out in the wilderness at the Wadi Kareth. John the Baptist was in the wilderness until his ministry began. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And then Paul later would as well. So it seems like throughout Scripture, people are taken into the wilderness to learn something. I love that. And what I'm going to share with you is that almost all of those wilderness stories are built on this one that we're going to take a look at, Israel's in the wilderness. (laughs) Let's first of all clear up a misperception that I carried with me for a long time and that maybe uh, some of our listeners do as well. We talk about these years in the wilderness as Israel's wandering years, uh, Mm -hmm. wandering in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. The question is, well, what does that mean? They had no place to go. It wasn't that they didn't know where they were or how to get out. So they really weren't wandering as much as they were waiting. These were not wandering years, but waiting years. And what were they waiting for? I think, Bill, you touched on it. This numbers text and Israel's failure to go up into the land demonstrated a lack of faith and character that they needed in place in order to be the people of God in the promised land. And the wilderness is going to play a role then in shaping them for that mission. Now, I promised we'd get to Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3. Let's go there now, because the question that we were wrestling with, the why, why in the world would the Lord leave his people in this austere place for 38 years? Uh, It's such a pressing question that Moses gives us the answer. So let's take a look at what we find in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you, 
in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And there we have it. Moses' answer, the Lord's answer to the why question. Why did he leave Israel waiting in the wilderness for all of these decades? He humbled you. Yeah, this is to humble you. Wilderness has a way of doing that, I think. For me, it does. I love hiking and being in wilderness settings because I feel my powerlessness. Yeah. I feel a readjustment in my ego. If I was in Egypt and I were to look at the horizon line, the highest thing on the horizon was something built by mortals. As soon as they go out into the wilderness, the highest thing on the horizon line is built by the divine hand. Yeah. And when I'm in Egypt, I never have to suffer for food and water. It is the most durable ecosystem in the ancient Near Eastern world. I go into the wilderness. I got nothing, yeah. no matter how hard I work. And you talk about experiences that readjust attitude. Uh, the wilderness is a place to grow humility. One of the definitions of humbleness or humility that helps me move beyond the external is to just see it as recognizing my need, recognizing Mm -hmm. my finiteness. And I think that's the way you just described it beautifully, Jack. Mm -hmm. Wilderness is a place that shows me I need something more than what I have to offer. What else do you see in their second purpose statement in Deuteronomy 2 and 3? The Lord would humble, the Lord would test. And I think the test question, though it's unarticulated here, is the question will you trust me now? Yeah. That's a question God is always asking, but it means something, I think, in the wilderness that it doesn't mean when I can see around mm. me all the agricultural fields and the livestock and the water supply that Egypt had to offer. Mm, what about now? Yeah. yeah. When the very things I need to survive are not in sight. Will you trust me mm-hmm. now? I'm struck too by the fact that we hear God say, I wanted to test you. And it almost seems like it's uncaring or unkind yeah. or something for God to do that. But if you think about even a test in school is not just to let the teacher know what you've learned, but it's so that you know how you're doing Mm -hmm. as well. And so there's a self-revelation here Mm -hmm. for Israel as well in this testing where they get to see where do they put their trust and the fact that the things that they normally put their trust in are going to fail them at times. And yet they serve a God who, even when the things of the world are going to fail them, he can provide for them and he can care for them and he is there for them. I think back to what you said earlier, Jack, about how they weren't wilderness wanderings, they were wilderness waiting. And the the other side Mm -hmm. of the, it weren't wanderings is that uh, Elisa read in verse two, you remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They weren't just wandering, they were being led Mm -hmm. and led by the present God who was with them and able to provide for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So Moses says, the Lord led you into the wilderness to humble you and to test you. One more layer in Deuteronomy 3. What is it? Well, it teaches them. (laughs) When you feel your need and then you recognize I can't do it and I need someone to meet my need. And in that space between recognizing your need and having it met, you know, is the weight. But then when you see God being faithful, providing manna is the illustration here. And he goes on to talk about clothes and et cetera. God provides for that, and so our faith is fulfilled. Yeah, God is willing, and he is able to provide 
He shows it day after day after day. We have the statement that God provided manna every day except Shabbat, except for, for Saturday. We have a handful of water miracles that are mentioned, a couple of them. But I think those water miracles would have had to occur on a more regular yeah. basis. And what yeah. a powerful mm-hmm. teaching moment that is. The very food and water I need day to day to day to day, mm. boy, you, you get the same lesson taught over and over and over mm-hmm. again. So the why question, right? Why? Why, Lord, would you leave your chosen people in this land for a multi-decade experience? What were you waiting to have happen in their lives? And and I think we're looking for change because this is a place, as Moses says, that three things can happen in a way that maybe they don't happen quite so efficiently or easily in other places. You become yeah. more humble, you are tested, and you are taught about divine yeah. sufficiency. Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to really be careful here because when I go through seasons of wilderness in my own life, I ask that why question too. Why, Lord? Why are you leaving me to wait in this place that is so uncomfortable and so undesirable? And I want to be cautious that I don't take this and say, well, this is the singular answer for everybody's experience. But it's been a helpful answer to me. Because if I'm trying to figure it out, I'm going, okay, the Lord is capable of leading me to a different place. So where in my life do I need to be more humble? Where in my life do I need to show the Lord I'm willing to trust him? Where can I see that trust? What can this experience teach me about God's care and concern and sufficiency? I think wilderness stories and seasons of wilderness go hand in hand and can help me. What I'm hearing you say, Jack, is that it's in the wilderness that we're brought to the end of ourselves, and we either choose that we're going to trust God in that wilderness or we're going to trust ourselves to sort it out. We circle back to the idea of place as a Bible reader. The places that we meet in the Bible are not all the same. Uh, And I know that's a big step for some folks to take who may have sort of homogenized all Bible lands into the same sort of place. So we're trying to break it out and realize that these places looked and they lived very differently from one another. And because they looked and lived differently, they produce uh, different kinds of stories, which serve different purposes in the Lord's economy. And I can't take a story that occurs in one region and move it to another region and have the same story. And in the wilderness, where life is lived over the edge, we have stories where God can go to work in people's lives to shape faith and character. It's a place that he uniquely can humble and test and teach. And I think every time I meet a wilderness story in the Bible, I ask the question, is that what the Lord is doing here? Yeah, important lessons we learn from this location of the Southern Wilderness. For Israel and for us, seasons in the wilderness may humble us, test us, and teach us about the Lord's willingness and ability to sustain us. Another great part of our conversation with Dr. Jack Beck about another region of the Holy Land and how a focus on location, location, location can have such a positive impact on our Bible reading. Well, we will wrap up our visit with Jack in this episode by going to Jerusalem and a spot in that city that is so crucial to our understanding of forgiveness. 
We'll do that after a quick reminder about something that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. And that is that this week's conversations are kind of previewing for us some of the places that they plan to go later this fall to film the fourth and final season of a video series called The Holy Land from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And because we appreciate so much what Jack does with us here on Discover the Word, we thought that the Discover the Word audience would like to help with the cost of producing these video Bible studies that incorporate this emphasis on geography that we've seen is so crucial. And so over the course of the next eight weeks, our goal is to raise a significant part of what it will cost to film and produce this final season. Now, as with everything, costs have gone up significantly, and it's expensive for a crew to travel over there and capture the high-quality video that makes this so compelling. But these Holy Land videos with Jack are having a real impact. And so would you help us financially with this effort, Jack? I honestly wish that absolutely every one of our viewers could come along with us and just tag along and see not only the physical nature of the land of Israel, but to see the way in which individuals in a group react to what they're seeing and hearing. And um, if you can't be that person who comes along in that way, let me say there's another way to come alongside us and support this. If the Lord has created an excitement in you for this programming, he may be saying, hey, come alongside in this way and help us do something for the greater kingdom good in connection with the Holy Land. And so to partner with us financially, uh, just go to our discovertheword.org website and click Donate. The money given there will go to this final season of the Holy Land videos. Partner with us there at discovertheword.org and click Donate. All right, and now Jerusalem, Jesus, and forgiveness. That's our focus to wrap up this visit to the Holy Land with Jack Beck. If there is a one place in the Holy Land that becomes sort of the center of gravity for the promises of God and the forgiveness he offers, uh, that has to be Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And even though it's not a region in the sense that some of the other places we've talked about are, it's just got so many stories, it deserves special Mm -hmm. attention. So we're going to talk Mm. today about New Testament Jerusalem, a city that I call the City of Forgiveness. I think as I move about in Jerusalem and go to different places, I find that different facets of the idea of forgiveness are unpacked for me. And so today I'd like to take you to the Mount of Olives uh, with Jesus in order to unpack the nuance of forgiveness that is found there, the notion that forgiveness, though it is a free gift, comes to us at a great cost. So off we go to explore this story. And there is a verse that I bet, I just bet, you haven't unpacked before, like I'd like to unpack it with you. Matthew 26, verse 45, just the first uh, phrases there. Let's put that in front of us. Then he came to the disciples. Yep. Now just wait for it, right? Waiting for that <laughs> great insight. <laughs> Jesus came back to the disciples. It says something about the whole experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's put that story out in front of us and kind of unpack some of the details. It actually speaks of Jesus in some very, very unique ways. 
get us started, if you would, uh, help us understand how you think about the story of Jesus in the garden. Well, it's one of my favorite places to visit in the Bible land. And to me, in some ways, it maybe is the most sobering place to visit because that's where Jesus' sufferings began. That's where he was so overwhelmed with anguish over what was coming mm. that he sweated drops of blood that angels had to come and strengthen him so he could go on to the remainder of his sufferings. It just seems to me to be almost a crux point where from this moment on, nothing's ever the same. Mm-hmm. You know, We see a lot of sameness in the gospel stories with healings and feedings and teachings and different things. Everything pivots at Gethsemane Hmm. as Jesus goes into the oil press. And that's, Mm. to me, what makes it so sobering. I think the Garden of Gethsemane prayer time is so revelatory of Jesus' human and divine Mm. combination Mm -hmm. in, in one message as he prays this, take this cup, I don't want to die. Mm. And at the same time, but not my will, yours be done. I mean, it's just this amazing humility and godly obedience, you know, this abandonment of himself to God's ways. And oh, I mean, how expensive and excruciating. Yeah, I'm especially drawn to Jesus's humanness in this because it's so easy to read the Gospels and think of Jesus as not as human as we want to admit. You know, he seems to always have it together, has the right answers, is strong, (laughs) always makes the right decisions and all these things. (laughs) If you really allow yourself to sink into this story, Mm -hmm. he doesn't want his disciples to be far away from him, Mm. right? Like there's a companionship here that he needs, if we would even say that. There's a a loneliness that he is feeling and he wants his people with him. And he takes an extra step by asking Peter and the sons of Zebedee to come even deeper into the garden with him. And then we see a lot of emotion, the grieving, the agitation, Mm -hmm. maybe some hurt here as they fall asleep when he needed them most. The very desperate plea, even the phrase, he threw himself to the ground and prayed. Yeah. I mean, how, how often do we find ourselves in situations where that's all we can do in grief or when someone we know is suffering or when we see mm-hmm. the evils in our world? And so all of that together, just like, thank you, Lord, for this story that shows, oh, yeah, Jesus was really human. If we can take that one step further, Daniel, in a previous conversation, Jack, you reminded us how often we as humans raise the why question. Mm -hmm. And just a few hours after Gethsemane from the cross, Jesus himself will ask the Father, why? Mm -hmm. Why have you forsaken me? And and as we're having these conversations, focusing in on place, it's no mistake, too, that he throws himself to the ground, that the ground has a place, has a role to play within his struggle. Um, the actual ground does. It yeah. sure does. And I'm just going to chime in with my perspective from having looked at this story very carefully in a real granular way. This is not the Jesus we've met before. Mm. There are so many details in this story, and you've called out a number of them, but I'm going to recollect them in a basket because I think we need to hold that perspective close to see this is not the Jesus we've met before. First of all, as he's described by the narrator, he is described with word pairs that are only used of Jesus and only used in this story, uh, English, sorrowful and troubled. Uh, This is not 
a mild upset. This is someone who has stricken to the core by what he has experienced emotionally and cognitively. Jesus describes himself overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I feel like I'm dying in the midst of this, he says. Jesus has not talked like this before in our experience with him. His physical condition, he goes prone on the ground, and he has this uh, hemohydrosis where the capillaries in his forehead are bursting, and we've got bloody sweat running down. This is not a Jesus we have seen before, and we certainly haven't heard a Jesus say, Father, I'd like to have a conference I ain't doing this. Let's do this a whole different way (laughs) if we can. Mm. I don't know if you have this sense, but Bill used the word, we're at a hinge point or something akin to that. When I'm on the Mount of Olives and when I review this story, there is no point in history where I feel my salvation hanging by a thinner thread. Jesus is saying I'm counting the cost of what this is going to take. I don't know if I'm all in on this quite yet. Is there another way? I sense that great divide that I'm about ready to cross. And one answer is going to mean my salvation and the other my eternal death. I feel that in this story. And I think also there's, again, in the geography of it and the topography even of it, there's also hope there because Gethsemane takes place in the shadow of Jerusalem's eastern gate, where the promise was Messiah when he came would enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate. So you have the promise and you have the pain. And what an antithesis, right? What an antithesis. So here in the city of forgiveness, Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, we're getting a sense of what this forgiveness is going to cost. And I think a dimension of this story that we haven't talked about yet that I want to elevate is the geography. And that is, how does the place of Gethsemane play a role or impact the struggle and prayer that we've been talking about. So let me lay it out for you. The Mount of Olives lies just across the Kidron Valley to the east of urban Jerusalem. And so I have the city, I have a valley, I have a two-mile extended ridge. Go just a little bit east of that, and here's what we need to harvest as well. We go into the Judean wilderness. And I'm talking like right over the ridge. I'm not talking about having to go very far. I'm talking about 35 or 40 minutes walk east, and I am out in the Judean wilderness. This is not the same wilderness we were talking about uh, in our last program. That's farther south, but it has all of the same characteristics of that ecosystem, a place, as Jeremiah said, where no one travels and no one lives. Who goes out into a place like that? people who want to get away from everyone else. And if there's a guy who needed to get away, it was Jesus' forebear, King David. Do you remember what happened when Absalom came into the arena and tried to take the kingdom away from his father? Yeah, he fled. (laughs) He fled. And the text in 2 Samuel 15 is very specific in that he fled across the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives, and into the wilderness. (laughs) If you trace that route on the land you go right through what would have been now the Garden of Gethsemane. It is as if David, Jesus' forebearer, had marked the trail for Jesus to follow. This is what you do when you get into trouble in Jerusalem. You go out 
into the wilderness. And I think it is the proximity of that escape route that certainly played a role here, too. Certainly it was the nearness of the moment of crucifixion. Certainly it was the idea that this is going to cost way more than I think I might be willing to pay. But here's the opportunity, the last opportunity Jesus will have to get away from it all. And he has to make a choice, either to go east or to go west. And then Jesus returned to the disciples. Yeah. And finally, I can take that breath that I'd been holding. Because for this entire story, I've been wondering, is Jesus going to do what's best for him in terms of getting away from this all out into the wilderness or what's best for me, which is horrific for Jesus? And he not only returns to the disciples, but I love the language that he uses when he gets back to them. Rise, let's go. Here comes the betrayer. Yeah. It shows he's considered the cost and he's willing to pay the cost. And that story is so powerful, I think, in that place because it is the last moment we see Jesus as a free man on this earth. David fled and took the way of escape, but Jesus, David's greater son, having the same opportunity, chose not to flee but he stayed the course. And the contrast, I think, is very vivid that you're painting for us, Jack. Do you think there's any way in which the disciples could have comprehended the closeness, the proximity of a potential escape route, and yet Jesus didn't take it? I think so. Peter pulls out a sword, right? So that could have been another Another chance. Right, Uh right? we'll hold him off. You run. Yeah. Yeah. It really echoes with me, too. You know, I always think they're just losers going to sleep. But it could well be that they're honoring an opportunity for him to save face and bow out as well as they loved their leader. But this whole focus on place just opens up a myriad of applications for us all. And I think what this story helps me appreciate is the selflessness of Jesus. I'm going to go back to what you said, Daniel, earlier, because I loved it. We sometimes make Jesus a lot more divine than human. He had to be authentically human in all dimensions. He had to wrestle with this. He had to have the choice and make the choice as to whether to go up and over the Mount of Olives into the wilderness or go back west into Jerusalem. He weighed the cost, and he committed to paying the cost. So in this broad context of Jerusalem, uh, this city that is the city of forgiveness, this story on the Mount of Olives helps us appreciate that even though the forgiveness of sins that we all enjoy comes to us as a free gift, we dare never forget that free gift came at great cost to Jesus, and we see him willing to pay it on the Mount of Olives. Dr. Jack Beck with us on this edition of the Discover the Word podcast, closing with a visit to Jerusalem, what Jack calls the city of forgiveness, and helping us see an aspect of forgiveness that's enhanced by our knowledge of the geography of the city and its proximity to that escape route to the Judean wilderness that Jesus did not take. Well, location does matter. Geography is meaningful. And Jack, thanks for helping us with that. And the good news is that in our next episode, Jack will be back here with Bill Crowder and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day to take us on a walking tour of the Gospels. Looking forward to that as well and hoping you'll be here at the table with us. Well, Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures. 
challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. So thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.